Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. Hey everybody, Jimmy Crane here, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. And this week's episode is sponsored by the Atlanta Improv Festival, running June 16th through the 18th at Village Theater. Submissions for teams are open until May 19th. Enjoy a weekend of great performances, workshops, shenanigans, and the coolest theater in Atlanta. Hurry, and you might have a chance to win $500 in an improv cage match. For more details, check out AtlantaImprovFestival.com. And this episode is also sponsored by the West Coast Musical Improv Festival. If you love improv and you love music, You know, both together is even better. Bring your heart full of song to San Francisco for the first annual West Coast Musical Improv Festival, taking place July 14th through the 17th, hosted by the Unscripted Theater Company and sponsored by the San Francisco Improv Festival. The West Coast Musical Improv Festival will feature musical improv shows, workshops, jams, improv, karaoke, and more. Go to nationalimprovnetwork.com by May 15th to submit. And this episode is also sponsored by the Kansas City Improv Festival. Submissions are now open for the Kansas City Improv Festival in its 16th year. The Kansas City Improv Festival has brought some of the most talented names in comedy to play. This year is no exception. Join headliners Dazariski and Cook County Social Club on the Kick Comedy Theater stage August 18th through the 20th and 25th through the 27th. Submissions will be accepted through May 16th. For more information on how to submit, go to kcimprovfestival.com. The Kansas City Improv Festival. Guaranteed funny. And guess what we got for you today? You guessed it, another great episode of Improv Nerd. Our guest today is Pete Gardner. He plays Daryl Whitefeather on the hit CW sitcom, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. We talked to our old friend about how he came to Chicago to start improvising back in the 90s. The importance of taking acting classes, even if you're on a hit sitcom, and his relationship with his father. Actually, I'm feeling a little sad about this episode because this is the second to last episode of the series of shows that we recorded uh, in Los Angeles. Actually, this was recorded in Burbank, California, uh, at Starburns Industries' uh, beautiful recording studio. Before we get to the episode with Pete, I just want to let you know that I, I don't know if you know this about me, but in my relationship with Lauren, uh, I I don't like to fight with her. I, I, I love to avoid confrontation, and uh, I will do it with Lauren. I'll do it with everybody, basically because I'm scared. Uh, probably of the intimacy when you really think about it. Uh, But every four years or so in in our relationship, we have this a really big fight. And this one came Tuesday. And uh, usually um, they'll they'll come around money. And uh, this one was no exception. And uh, I was just, it was really intense. And uh, I've never seen Lauren that upset. Um, And, you know, of course, when I bring it to group therapy, they're like, it wasn't about... It wasn't about uh, the money. It wasn't about, it's about having a baby, which probably is the case because I am out of my mind. I'm crazy. I feel like I'm having a breakdown. So um, I just thought you, you'd want to know that uh, I'm still here for you. Here it is. You're going to love this. Pete Gardner is a dear old friend, I'm, uh, and I'm so happy for his success because he's really slugged it out, and uh, he's now enjoying success on a hit sitcom, and he's getting great reviews on his portrayal of Daryl Whitefeather 
on the show, and they're saying he's the, the character is the first believable uh, bisexual character on television. So here it is. You're going to love this, the Pete Gardner episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Pete Gardner, thank you for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Oh my God, Jimmy, I'm such a huge fan. I love the show, and I'm glad to be here. It's well, true, I do love the show. Do you, you actually listen? I really do. I thought it was really interesting. I love the Susan Messing one. I thought that was really great. I love the um, Brian Stack one, um, the Besser one. Uh, there were a bunch of them. I listened to a bunch of them. I I especially just, it was great to hear people's backstory. I didn't know Brian Stack's backstory at all. Like, I just knew that he was up in you know Madison, and then he came to Chicago. I'm always like honored because I feel like I'm doing it for you know a younger audience. And then with people that I've worked with, my peers listen to it and like it, it you know, it but it's so a cool close. show. It's it's a great idea to really get behind the brains of these people that you've watched and enjoyed for years, but you don't really know anything about them and like what makes them tick. And the thing that's really odd is a lot of times they're not very open. You know, when you're at a bar or you're talking to them, you're like you get very little information. And I thought that that's really nice to find out. Well, thank you. You grew up in Scarsdale, New York. I did. Home of the Diet and the Murder. Yes, and you had a you had a great relationship with your dad. I did. He was the Cub Scout leader. He was a basketball coach. And he was very funny. He had a great sense of humor. He had a really great sense in, of humor. In what way? Do you remember something? Oh, oh he just like everything. He never seemed serious. He never seemed serious whenever he was home from work. It's funny, though. My brother saw him as a great businessman because that was the other Your side older of him. brother. My older brother. So my brother was driven to business and was very serious. And then I picked the the lighthearted side of him, like like something he would do is he'd be he always had sports cars, he always had a convertible, and uh, one time he um, we had skateboards when skateboards were big in the seventies, and he was like, hang on to the back of the car, and we'll you know ride up the hill, and so he would take us, you know, we'd pull on the thing, and then we'd sl- go down the hill. He was just really fun. He was just always fun. Is that you know? Because I remember you uh, when we were in Chicago, you. Uh, you know, we'd be at parties, and you and James Grace would get in like mustard fights, and you'd leave somebody be totally covered in ketchup. Mm-hmm. Totally covered. Is was that where you got that side? You think? Oh, I don't know about that. Okay, uh, I but um, uh, that playful side. Actually, the way he was with me and my brother, and that has definitely continued on with my son and my both my sons, Matthew and Dad. In what way? Oh, just that's the I. How are you a playful father? I'm always goofing around. I'm always doing the voice of the dog or, you know, I you know, we're always doing accents. And then like I teach my sons, like my son Dexter a couple years back, um, I taught him and scene. So like we'd be in, in the car doing bits and Dexter would just be like, and scene. <laughs> just kind of slowing me down. But uh that's what's really great though, I think, being that kind of a dad, is that you get their they want to do what you want to do because you're fun to be around. And when you're not happy, they feel like they've disappointed you and they'd much rather you be the happy fun dad than being the, the you know, angry or, or whatever dad. So it's so much easier to just be that way rather than always be strict and then sometimes be nice. Eh, it's easier the other way. And then at 13, your, your dad passes away. And That's as right. you know, you, you wrote a beautiful uh, note to me when my dad recently passed away. Um, what was that like? When oh, that my God. Thir- that was like waking up in a TV movie of the week that I couldn't get out of. 
I remember waking up for school because my dad would always wake me up for school. And I woke up and it was already like 8.30 or, or 7.30 or something. It, it, it was an odd time that I normally was up by 7 because he came in and said, get going. And I remember it was fall and I looked out the my bedroom window and there's a priest coming up the driveway. That's never, you know, that th- th- we weren't that family. We weren't the family that had <laughs> right. them over for cookies right, right, and stuff. Right. And so, and then I saw all the lights on downstairs, which never was that case in the morning, early morning like that. And then I went into his bedroom and I could see that he hadn't been sleeping on his pillow. So I knew that he had never come home. And I can remember thinking before I went down those stairs, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go down there because I know. And then I had to go down there. My mom told me. And then the odd thing was, like, my brother went to school. He had a test. He went to school the day that he found out. Me? I, like, it was like a TV movie of the week. I got on a bike. I got on my bike in the backyard, and I drove as far as I could go. And it was raining and pouring, and I'm riding my bike. And I realized I got about, you know, a couple miles away, and I realized there was nowhere I could go. You know, there was I couldn't run from it. I couldn't hide from it. And it, someone uh, like so me who's, who's dealing with the grief of their father, mm-hmm. is how do you get past that? Well, you know, I think, I mean, just my experience is um, it takes mm, just a long time until you start to, because there's a lot of anger. I remember having dreams about he would come back in my dreams and I would yell at him and I'd be so mad at him that he took off. I mean, 13 is a very pivotal age. You know, you're going through adolescence. And uh, I was always very angry at him. And you kind of, you get over that. And then after a while, you start to realize that all the things that you did together, all the things that you talked about, all the things that he taught you, they're with you forever. And all the stories and things that you remember, all they're all with you forever. But the, it really changed. And I really felt like the wound was finally healed was when Matthew was born. Your first? My first yeah. son. And when that happened, it was amazing. That relationship came back. Except for the re- the roles were reversed, but it was such an amazing feeling, and it really did. It really made it like everything. All the pain of it all went away, but it was hard, you know, especially like you know elementary school and junior high and high school and all that stuff of not having a dad and like your dad not coming to visit you at college, your dad not being there for all these things where he had always been so present. It was really tough, but I think it forms who you are. I think. In it, what way did it form you? I just think, I don't know, it's some, in some ways good ways, in some ways bad ways. I think in a bad way, I didn't want to deal with emotion like that ever again. Because the pain was so... I was so, very scared of that yeah. pain because that pain was so scary. But then in a good way, I started to just live for the moment. I started just living my life because I realized that it wasn't... You, we all think we're all going to make it to 80. You know, we just all are 90. <laughs> it gets further back as right, you get sure, further down sure, the line, yeah. but uh, but we keep thinking it like well, like it could end tomorrow. I could go out and get hit by a truck tonight or whatever, and that's the truth. And to figure that out at thirteen, I started to do what I wanted to do, and I think I think that made a big impact on me because then I went to Australia. I did all kinds of crazy things. I followed my bliss to go to Chicago and and because of Bill Murray and and all the people on Saturday Night Live to you know be like them so I went to Chicago to do Second City and all that kind of great stuff and work with Del Close I mean I I don't know that I would have like my brother was on a path that he felt he had to do up until he got his law degree and then he started to live his life 
And so tell me how you ended up in Chicago. You were at Skidmore College. I was at Skidmore College. And somebody somebody came down into like the Ratskeller student union place with a letter from somebody from Australia. And I was going to Skidmore. And I really, I was going to acting school first. And in then New York. In you New York. Like, yeah. Were and you at Juilliard? No, no. Okay. I was at the American Academy of Dramatic okay. Arts. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Mmm. Mm. Use your diaphragm. <laughs> But it was it was good, but I really felt like I wasn't I didn't know who I was. I was a kid. I was playing King Lear. It made no sense. I just I didn't I didn't I hadn't lived much. So then I went to go visit a friend of mine, Mike Shapps, up in um up at Skidmore, and he was going to school there. I visited for a weekend, ended up staying for like two years, had a wonderful time. Uh, it was a former girls' school, so it was seventy percent girls, thirty percent guys. Were you going to classes, or were you? Oh or, yeah, okay. I was going. Oh, because I was pretending I was playing a right, college student. Right. So I had the outfit, you right. know. I had the, the, I went to like um, what the Bill of Rights class, and I went to all these things. I didn't do any acting classes or anything like that. I was taking a break from that, and then. Somebody at Skidmore came down and they had a letter from somebody that was living on a sheep station in Australia. And I was like, that's it. That's my next thing. That's what I'm going to do. And so I went to the library and a whole bunch of guys came with me and we all were like, let's look at Australia. And we did the spinning around the map thing and putting our finger down and wagga wagga Australia. We're all going to go and oh, it's going to be awesome. And then, you know, five guys were going to go and then two guys were going to go. Then it was just me and Mad Dog Madden. And then as it got time to actually leave, he was like, I can't go. And so I went by myself. But it was um, so I went to Australia. And the funniest thing, I got to Australia and I went to go see a movie called Birdie. And it was about it was about young guys dealing with going to Vietnam. It was uh, Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine, I think, were in the movie. And that movie had such an effect on me. I just was like, oh. That's what I should be doing. And I had just gotten to New Zealand. I hadn't even got to Australia yet. And I was like, oh, that's what I should be doing. It was like the weirdest thing, but it was like a thorn in my side for the whole trip. And I was gone for 11 months, but the whole time I kept thinking, I got to go. I got to go. I got to do this. I should be doing this. And so I had this wonderful experience and this great trip. But I knew as soon as I was ready to go, I was going to. And then I knew because of Bill Murray. And Bill Murray, because of the story about my dad, I can tell you this one, is that Bill Murray was um, on Saturday Night Live, and when he got the job, he wasn't meeting expectations. He was he did this thing where he he talked to the audience. He was the new guy, and he told this whole story about how he's the new guy and how he's really funny and how his dad was always funnier than he was and how his dad would be so disappointed that he wasn't as funny now. But his dad died, and my dad had only died like less than a month earlier. And when I saw this, and it turned a corner for me because I realized it's like people recover from this. I'm going to get over this. If he can do it, I can do it. I'm going to get over this. And so I always kind of looked at Bill Murray became my favorite forever. And I'm still sure people can still see it in what I do now. But so I always I always looked to him. And so when I, I was like, where did he learn? So I'm going to go where he went. So I always knew I was going to go to Chicago at some point. But then as soon as I got back from Australia, I just... I actually went out to the vineyard, stayed on the vineyard for a couple Martha's of months. Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard had a wonderful time there, and then now when you say wonderful time, is it, I imagining a lot of partying? Back oh then. God, it was great. I also got a great job. I I was a cook, 
And so I would, um, I'd go to work at four in the afternoon and I'd get off at 10 o'clock at night. Half of my pay was in check form so I could put that in the bank. The rest of it was in cash. I would just spend all the cash and it was pretty girls and I went to the beach every day and it was just beautiful. And I, my old sports car, somebody brought it over from, or I brought it over from New Hampshire so I had that on the thing. It didn't work all the time, though. I always remember if it didn't like this, I always felt that if it didn't like the certain girl that I was dating at the time, it wouldn't start. It would just embarrass me. It was always terrible. And the love, of the, ca- went, the love of the cars came from your dad. From my dad. It was exactly so I continue well, that. I still have one of those. Which is interesting because your dad died in a car accident, right? Mm-hmm. I know. You'd think that, that, would, uh, that would deter me, but no. But uh, go ahead. So you come to Chicago. So I come to Chicago. And I start working at Butch McGuire's because I met a girl named Stephanie Migley on Martha's Vineyard. And Stephanie Migley, they were singing Bear Down Chicago Bears. And I went over and joined them. Or maybe it was uh, Sweet Home Chicago or, no, Chicago, uh, my kind of town. And so I went over there and joined them. And I said I was on my way there. They said, when you get there, look us up. So the first thing we did, well, actually, we went to every college town on the way to Chicago. You don't make it simple. I shouldn't say you don't make it simple. You make it fun. Oh, you know, my I, God, it was so much fun. But we did. We went to every, we stopped at every college. So it would be like, it would be like you know, Oktoberfest, and then we'd go to somebody else's homecoming. And so a friend of mine, Mike Cage, and I, we went to all the different parties all the way up, and then we ended up in Chicago. Went to University of Michigan, everything. Ended up in Chicago, went, stayed at, um, what's, um, um, Maggie Kane. Do you know Maggie Kane? Maggie Kane. Maggie Kane, Maggie Kane and around. Stephanie were uh, good friends. Migleys were from a, a North Shore suburb it, out of Chicago. Exactly. So we stayed with them, and uh, Stephanie Migley knew Butch McGuire. We went to go see Butch McGuire. And Butch McGuire is a legendary uh, bar. Singles on, bar single in Chicago. Like Street. the original singles yes. bar, supposedly. Yeah. On Rush Street. And so I got a job working there. And oh my god, we had such a good time there. Oh, it was just embarrassing. But I used to, I used to get so drunk. Oh, it was terrible. I used to sleep underneath the um, the shuffle bowling machine, and then sometimes I'd just stay there and then wake up for my Sunday morning shift working in the kitchen. Oh, it's terrible. How would you clean up and not look like you? Not so much. Okay, I was in the kitchen, so nobody really saw. Okay. I did that twice. Okay, maybe more. No, but no, it was really just it was a one or two time thing. But it also, it was our lives. You know, we were at Bush McGuire's. When you worked there, it's like there was nothing on the outside. It was kind of like when you work at Second City. Like, you don't really know the rest of the world anymore. You just, you're so focused on where you're at. But <clears throat> there was a guy named Scotty Weil who was a bartender there. And he was doing a show at an improv place. And I was like, oh, you know, I guess I should probably start doing that or looking into that. So I went to go see his improv show, and it was the I.O. The and Improv so that, Olympic that when was we the, were there. That was the very first place that I went to. And uh, do you remember who you saw? Oh, I know that Rosowski was there. Dave Rosowski. David Rosowski. I'm pretty sure was doing doing a show. Um, so this guy, if I'm not mistaken, he may have been in an early car- incarnation of Floyd's Toothbrush. That group, Scotty Weil. He may have been. I'm not really 100 percent sure. What was it that you liked about when you saw it? Um, that it was a possibility. That's that was the number one thing because everybody was making Second City seem so impossible, like like oh yeah well you know you got audition and it's a big deal and I don't know I don't know well what's his name is in the classes and that was like a big deal you know like one of the other bartenders was in the classes and he was the big deal and I was like oh I don't know this seems like it can be hard and this seemed like it was really a possibility, and also it was funny, 
Um, and so then I went and I started finding out the, the classes. I think I did the IO classes before I did the Second City classes. Yeah, I'm 90%. Yeah, definitely. Definitely did that. And uh, so I started to do it. Um, I was terrified. I was terrified all the time. I just, it, it really, I don't think that I understood a lot of what they were teaching me. And I think that's why I became a teacher later. is Because once it made sense to me, I wanted to explain it to the people in class that were like me, that didn't get it. Because I just felt like there was so much about it that I just, it all seems so obvious to me now. But when I did it, maybe I was just, maybe I was so focused on trying to be funny or trying to, you know, I'm not in it enough or whatever, all those things that never leave you. But I I just felt like I didn't understand really what was going on. I remember when I, and then also the terrifying thing that Sharna used to do was she would look into the crowd and pick people to go up into the show. And now people would, you know, most people would probably be like, that's great, awesome, what a great so opportunity. So you would come to the show and just watch the show and she would... She would look into the audience if they were like a man or two down, and she'd look into the audience and be like, who's in class that's good? Hey, you, get up. And you're like, oh, that terrified me. That terrified me. I just, I, I like, oh. And I think I, I, I learned later <clears throat> that the things that scared you are the things that you're supposed to go towards instead of the things that you're supposed to hide from because they never go away. If you're always scared of freeze tag, that's never going to change. It's always going to be there hiding in your, in your closet. You gotta face it. You gotta jump into it. You gotta do it. And the more that I did that, the, that's when I really started to grow. And that's when I when I really started to understand it. And I really started to understand. Then when I got into Dell's classes, it took a long time to decipher what he was talking about. But then once I really understood what Dell was talking about, that's when those things really hit home. What did you get from Dell? Oh, I think the the simplicity, the simplicity of of just pay attention, just listen, just really listen. And build off of what's being said. I know this is, these sounds, uh, God is in the details is something he would say all the time. And, you know, when he would say that, I'd be like, yeah, of course, God's in the details. What? I don't know what that means. But then I started to realize it was just like, take your time, really dig in and really connect with that other person. I think that's really, and that took me a long time to even get to that. But now I feel like that's the big benefit of the, uh, bringing the bridge of improv to acting. It's that connection. It's connecting with people because it's really difficult to, to act well if you're not connected with the other person. And, and you're, you just can't. I, the, my, I remember when I first started doing, you know, acting out here and stuff like that. And, you know, you're just in you're like all the stuff you came up with at home. And, you know, like, and, you know, I think that that's something that I just did. But then I've gone and see, you know, I've gone to see directors talk at movies, you know, when they do like a like a whatever a panel or whatever after the show. And they're like, you know, first they just have to wait until we get all the performances out of everybody that they did in their hotel room for two hours. And so once that's over, then people start really talking to each other and whatever. But that's the real benefit is the, the really the connecting with each and other. And what do you mean about the connection when you're working with a script? How do you connect? Well, first of all, I mean, you have to have done your homework on the script and the situation. What I used to do, because when we did improvisation, I got so much credit for playing silly characters that people are like, oh, Pete, that German guy, that's the, oh, that's a great character. That's a great character. So I really started to develop this idea that when I was acting or performing, I wasn't ever me. I was always a character. And I had to go back to acting class and really learn to play me first, like do it through me. 
And so you have to basically do all your homework and really so that you understand that situation. But then you have to really connect with that person. And, you, and it's very, it's, I find it to be very difficult if you don't really have a good understanding of what the story is about and what the situation is about and what you've kind of imagined about how you feel about them and what they think about stuff. And then you just play moment to moment and you just forget about the lines. You forget everything. And then the lines are just there to they support you. What if you don't like the person? And it's it's got to happen. You're like, oh, I oh, don't. but that's you know what's amazing is that you. I mean, that's such a small part of it. When you're playing, you get you're in the story. You're really caught up in the story. It's like you know, like in the show that I'm doing now. Crazy I, you know, I'm kissing a, I'm kissing a dude, and that's not something that's in my wheelhouse normally. But you know, if you get caught up in the story and you get caught up in in what's happening. It all makes sense. It all it all flows. And it, when you don't like people or whatever, it's amazing. But like sometimes you have to be in love with somebody that you're not that you don't particularly have any connection with, or they're, they're very show busy or whatever, whatever the thing is. But you can find in five seconds, you can find one little detail about them that you really like. And all you do is just spin on that one detail, and you can be in love with that person like that. So keep making it that just small keep, detail. That small detail, and just build on it, and build on it, and build on it, until it overwhelms you. I did a show with a woman. Do you, have, do you know Molly Hagan? I know of her. Molly Hagan, she was in Herman's Head. She's been in a lot yes. of stuff. She's on uh, iZombie now. She's in a lot of stuff. And I did a play with her last year, and I had been in acting class for a while, and I did this play called uh, Dinner with Friends, which is a fantastic play, Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Wonderful play, excellent script. And when we started doing the show, and I had a relationship with her. I mean, I was friends with her for a long time. When I did the play, I fell in love with her. And it was the craziest, weirdest feeling. I mean, not a sexual kind of love at all, but like, I, it was like being in junior high all over again. We're like butterflies, and I'd see her, and I, but it was critical to the play. It wouldn't have made sense. The, the, the real key is that the, one couple is breaking up and the other couple it hangs together but you it looks like they're going to break up too but you don't know but there has to be that love and it was overwhelming it was overwhelming and i always before you know in the past i would pretend to be in love you know i would act in love and this was it was in me and it was i was i it blew my mind and to the point where i told her i said you know what after the show's over, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you and what, what did you going say on. to her. I told her. And what she said. And she said, Pay, that happens all the time. That happens in every play you're in. Good, because, you know, I've had a lot of shame. I, I did that show. I think you were out of town. It was called Naked with Stephanie Ware. Oh, yeah. I remember and that I, show. I fell in love with her. You know, I had a, a huge crush on her, you know? But the interesting thing was, as soon as the show was over, it clicked off like a switch. And I that, that surprised me, too. Because... It was the weirdest thing. She she went back to being a friend, and also, I, I just the the kind of filter that I was looking at her through, just disappeared. Did you say anything to Susie, your wife? When of it was course. Going down? And what did she say? She, I mean, God love her. How could you support somebody in doing? And she was producing the show, but she knew, she knew how important it was not only to the show. She knew how important it was to me for that kind of growth. Because that's different for me. That's mm -hmm. a very different thing. I Because you know what? For many years when I was doing improv, it was all... I've said this to people and they always look at me sideways. But maybe you'll understand. When I was doing improv, it was always from the head. I was always being clever. And I was always working with people that I always thought were so funny that I always felt like I had to keep up with them. So I was kind of like... I was always thinking a lot. 
and I always like trying very hard as far as like w- mentally, like always trying to think like, what's the next move? And, uh, and when I started to do this stuff, I started to come from here, from like my center, from my, from, I don't know, whatever, you know, like from whatever. And I was actually feeling shit and I never did that before. I never did that before. I never felt anything. I always was like, you know, thinking it, but I never was feeling it. But I wonder how much because you you talked about your dad and how how. Oh, absolutely! And, and, That's a great. And now 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 you get now you have kids and now you're starting to, to let yourself to feel this stuff that you didn't want to feel. That's a hundred percent true. You know what? That's a that's a a brilliant connection because, uh, I really believe that I turned it off. I think I mentally turned it off because when I was in acting class, what I really started to deal with to realize was that. I would watch things and I would be like, oh, that's not right. Mm, that, I, there's too much emotion. There's too much emotion in that scene. And I started to realize I had a problem with emotion. I was, I was afraid of my emotions and I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't want it. And then as soon as I made that realization, I started to open up. And then I did it more and more. And the thing is, you know, if you're in an acting class or whatever, keep going up. Go up, go up, go up and get in and fail, fail, fail. And the biggest the biggest lesson I learned was there is no good and bad. There is no, like, there's no good, because we did that all the time in improv. It was like, that was a good show, that was a bad show. You know, it was like, oh, that was a good scene, that was a bad scene. Oh, I'm, I'm in a slump or whatever. But all that, it's just like, it is what it is. And you're in, and, and it's all in. So if you're a little bit nervous, work that into the scene. If you're a little bit angry about something, work that into the scene. If you're feeling anything, just play with it. Don't push it down. Sometimes you'll go to auditions and you'll be so nervous and you'll be so freaked out. And honestly, that still happens to me today where I'm like, I'm just going to jump on that elevator and go home. But you just stick it out and you use it and it just comes right out of you. And it's, it's a great thing. So if you go in and you're nervous and you have an audition, you just you sit with it? You're just comfortable with it? You, I mean, I just, yeah, I just, I you relax and don't try to, don't try to push it away because then you're dealing with something that, I mean, you're not dealing with something that's absolutely happening inside of you. And it's a gift. It's a gift. There's something actually happening inside of you. So use it. Is it that simple for you? You know, I'm in therapy and stuff like that. Was it that simple? Like, I'm not, uh, I'm not feeling my emotions. I want to get more in touch with my emotions. And then you were able to apply it? Oh, come on. We're okay. talking years. Okay. We're talking years. But for years, I just didn't deal with it and still got away with it. And it was interesting. I got to be about 35 and I was doing this, you know, doing, I was working. I was working pretty well. You Meaning, know, I was, com- I, no, no, I was doing doing guest stars on TV okay, shows, shows, small parts of movies, okay. but I was all focused on how much money am I making and where where do I stack up with everybody else? Like, am I working as much as this guy? Am I working much as that guy? Whatever that kind of thing. And I lost all interest in the actual creativity of the whole process, the whole thing. I just lost it all, and it just was empty. And then I started to look at what I was doing, and I was like, what am I doing? Actually, I did a commercial audition. I brought Matthew with me one time. Your and I son. To, yeah, I had to uh, be in my underpants. And Matthew looked at me, and he was like, what are you doing? He was like five or six at the time. And I thought to myself, I was like, what am I doing? What is this? This is a joke. I'm playing pretend. This is stupid. And I went home. This is maybe a couple months later. And I had like problems with my taxes or something. It was a big thing. I was worried about whatever. And... Somebody was watching Liar Liar, which is a Jim Carrey movie. And I watched Jim Carrey for maybe two minutes. And I forgot all about whatever my problems were. 
and I was laughing at Jim Carrey, being so silly and so ridiculous. But I thought, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks, like this has value. It has value. It's not just about being famous. It's not just about, it's about expressing yourself. It's about being, uh, taking the burden off of somebody else for a few minutes and, and having something for them to enjoy. And I, I know that sounds so hokey, but that's truly, truly what rocks my world now. That's what makes me happy now is to, is to really experience stuff. And, and then when I got on that path, then I started to realize what's holding me back. Like, then I'd watch myself in things. And also, for a long time, I never watched myself in stuff. You know, I would, I would, you know, I, I would be in stuff, but I, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it because I wasn't really comfortable with it. And then now I can look at myself almost completely detached and be like, oh, that's good. That's funny. I, I like that. That's good. So why didn't you want to watch yourself? Because I knew I wasn't there. I knew I wasn't where I wanted to be, and I knew... I knew it was all stuff that I had thought of, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't playing. And then it, I just, but you do, I mean, at this point you must have done a hundred commercials by 35. Oh, you've done, I mean, you, I mean, geez, you could pull the wool over everybody's eyes forever. It's, it's what you are getting out of it. Are you connected? Are you there? Are you playing? And, you know, and then when, if you, when you are, and when you're really playing, people connect, people get it. People, people can enjoy your experience because it's like their experience because it's honest. And if, if you can just have people talk, uh, have a genuine conversation on stage, there's magic there. Genuine conversation. People acting at each other, oh, you just want to run. But I just, I, it makes a difference, but it took a long time. And first, you know, like you'll have a, a you know, you'll have a kind of a breakthrough and then you'll be like, Oh, okay. And then you like then you just go back to doing whatever you're doing and you know like doing it the same way you've always done it. And then you run into that same wall again and then you chip away at it again and then you chip away. And now I'm working and doing all kinds of stuff. I'm going back to class. I'm going to go back to class because I know I can go further. I know I can open up more. And when you the more you open up, it's all about letting go. And the more you open up, the more magic that comes out. The more stuff that you didn't even know. And what do you think prevents people from taking classes? Because I see it improv a lot Total of times. fear. I mean, geez, I did it at 40. It's embarrassing. It seems like, oh, Pete, you've already done a bunch of stuff. And I bought into that. I bought into that ego thing of like, oh, I'm already successful. Look at my resume. It doesn't matter. And the other thing that's great is that when you make these discoveries, I used to give myself a real hard time of like, God almighty, I'm 42 and I'm just figuring this out. And then I was like, oh, geez, I'm 45 and I'm just getting this. I'm whatever. And it doesn't matter as long as you're getting it, as long as you're understanding it. That's all that matters. But it's the same thing as like when, when in improv, when I finally started to understand improv, I wanted to teach it because I was like, oh, I get it now. I just didn't understand it before. But it's all about fear. It's all about fear and not sharing and, you know, whatever. Being made fun of. So when we were doing Jazz Freddy, which is this great group that we did, oh, can you tell people amazing... that didn't know uh, about Jazz Freddy, what made it so great? Oh, what made it so great was the people. The people and the performers were just absolutely brilliant. But I had been in a show called Ed, and when I was in that show, I had been doing improv for quite a while, and when I saw it, we were always searching for the next thing. Yes. You know when we were at the I.O. When yes. we were at the I.O. And we, even after we left the I.O., yeah. we're always searching for the next thing. What's the next thing? Arti and, we, artistically, I believe. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's what I meant. But it's just like looking to like, how can we, but we were so stuck with what we knew. So we needed somebody to kind of jolt us out of that pattern. And when I did uh, Ed, I was like, oh, wow, I get this. And then I would explain it sometimes to the cast. Jim, not not all of them, I mean, certainly. But I became kind of a liaison with what Jim um, Denon. Jim Denon would say. And then I'd be like, oh, God, do you see? This is brilliant. Oh, my God, yeah. And so then when we do the show, and people would be like, I.O. people would come to the show and they'd be like, oh, you got really lucky. That's really lucky. Whatever. But it was not. It was it was a magical thing. It was it was an amazing thing. It was a new form. And I found out later that it had a lot more to do with John Lear than it did with Jim Denham. I mean, Jim Denham was definitely the person, but John Lear. I mean, if you look at the 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 future progression, John Lear keeps doing improv shows and TV improv shows and whatever. He was the he was the real brains behind it. I think that's my two cents. And we had a work ethic that I don't think people understand today when they do an improv show. Oh, on that show? <laughs> Even I before that, that, yeah. that was like party until it was four o'clock no, in the no, morning. No, no. I mean the commitment we had when we did Jazz Freddy. Oh my God, that that's you know what? That's still and that's the same way I feel about acting. The same way I feel about improv. It's the rehearsal that I love. I love rehearsal because that's where. You really break down all the walls, and you really build up all the trust. And you really get to know each other, and you really get to... What we did in Jazz Freddy rehearsal was some of the best stuff I've ever seen still today. And we would do amazing stuff in rehearsal, and then we'd come back like three or four steps in the show because there were people watching. But, oh, my God, and different people, and so many people were... Doing things they, I think Noah Gregoropoulos, like what his transformation from the beginning of that show to the end of that show, he became a different person. Yes. And also he became like an improv legend where he really did. He had so much, he, he really, I just, I, I loved what he did. But, but we rehearsed like three or four nights a week. And it made all the difference. And it made all the difference because also you think, see, now people still do shows like that where they have a large group of people and they all play, but they don't have any trust. They don't have any sort of connection with each other. It's just, it's basically, we're up against each other almost. It's like, well, I know you're going to bring it, and I better bring it. And so I'm in my head thinking about me, and you're in your head thinking about you. And what comes of that? Nothing. And when we were doing, oh, uh, when we were doing Jazz Freddy and stuff like that, and even when I went on to do like Pete and Paul, where Paul Valencourt and I did uh, did our two-man show. Out here at I.O. West. Out here at I.O. West. Um, it's all about connecting with each other and and really focusing on your partner and and i really did feel like that was such a big part also the listening again because when we did jazz freddy that's still one of my favorite things to do is to watch your scene and then pull ideas from your scene and then pop things you know like bring you back or tag you back and forward uh back and forwards in time i just loved that but i the my overall thing i really almost have no interest in doing a pickup improv show it's just I'm just not I'm not that clever I'm not that funny where I can just get up and do Pete Gardner for 25 minutes or whatever it just doesn't interest me it just doesn't interest me but I love the feeling of working on a form like working on what are we working on together I I also did Stacy's Not Here which was uh, over a bang and that was uh, Dave Rosowski and Peter Marietta and Evan Gore and D Ryan and Teresa Mulligan. Mulligan oh my God I mean that was like. To me, that was brilliant. And every time we did a new incarnation of that show, I changed the format. 
I would be like, well, this time, let's do this. Because I didn't want to do, I don't like doing the same thing over and over and over again. Because after a while, you know the form and you can, you know, it's like it's easy. I love the struggle. I love that feeling of like, Jimmy, you got to be with me because we're going to get this. We're going to figure this out. That's what I loved about working with Paul Valancourt. That show, we, you know, a lot of two-person or two-man improv shows are very slow, which is great, very patient. This show was very fast and moved around. We had like four different locations and we would jump from each location. It was, it was great. But you were playing your subconscious. There was no time to think of anything or plan anything. It just went really fast, but oh my God, it was it fun. It was work, though. That was hard. That was really hard. And then you, you move after Jazz Freddy, you direct at Second City. After Jazz Freddy, yeah, then I got to direct at Second City, which was great. Uh, I got to work in the, with the Turing Company, which was Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Ali Faranakian, Bill Cott, uh, Patrick McCartney, uh, Rachel Hamilton. I think that was the whole squad. And that was great. That was really great. That was, that was, I learned so much from those guys because they pushed me. They pushed me. They did not want to do the best of Second City. They wanted to do their own stuff. And they would push me and push me to do their own thing. And I was so new that I was like, no, we got to do this stuff like we're supposed to. But they made me better because they pushed me hard. And then I'll never forget, I went to go see, uh, I went to go see Pinata Full of Bees. Which was Adam which, McKay. Which and, was and the big show. It blew oh up God. Second City. Any of the format, the review. Blew it up. Yeah. Totally blew it up. Had a real strong point of view. Oh, my God. And it was just, it was just, it like, turned the Carol Burnett show on its head. Like, right. I mean, it was just like, oh, it was brilliant. It was just brilliant. And uh, I remember being in the front row or on the rail there with Laura Kraft, and I remember leaning over to her, and I was like, oh, I feel so sorry for the poor loser who's got to do the next ETC show. And it ended up being me. <laughs> oh my god the pressure of that of like having to do that but i got to work with amazing people i got to work with brian stack and miriam tolan and uh oh my god that was amazing and then oh i one of the cast members mick napier was directing at the time at the on the main stage right he had taken he was the next show on the main stage right after, after me and so then he said uh or the main stage you were doing Chronologically, ETC. Chronologically, I was yeah. doing ETC. And uh, he came back to look at the ETC players to see if he wanted to pull anybody up. And I had some old guard people in my thing. <laughs> and uh, they said, you know, it would really be really helpful just to kind of make me feel centered if I could know that, <laughs> that, I, that I'm going to stay with the show and, you know, I'm not going to get pulled up to, to main stage. And I said, Mick, would you tell me, like, if there's anybody you're going to pick up? And he's like, Pete, I don't usually do that. That's not really. I was like, just for me, would you do it? And he told me, and I told the guy, and he quit on the spot. And I was like, are you kidding? And he's like, yeah, well, if I'm not going to get moved up to, to main stage, I'm out. And we had the whole show already, like, planned of, like, we're doing stuff with musical instruments. And it was a nightmare. And I was so freaked out. But, I didn't know an actor quit on you like that. Oh, yeah. But I... Who replaced him? Neil Flynn. Oh. Because I, Neil Flynn was no longer with the Turing Company. He was off doing, you know, I.O. or whatever he was doing at the time. And uh, I was like, these guys, because I lost a veteran, you know, and you need a veteran to, to lead. And so I needed to find somebody who would be the rookie veteran. And so I went and I asked Neil Flynn, and I was like, would you please do this? And he was like, oh, uh, yeah, I think I would. 
and he did it, and he was brilliant. He was brilliant, and I got to watch his magic, and Brian Stack's magic, and Miriam's magic, and Dee's magic. Dee Ryan. Over and over, night after night, and it was a joy. It was a joy. It was hard. It was a lot of work, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily directing sketch comedy. wasn't, you know, I mean, I, but luckily from the ETC, because those kids had pushed me so hard, I knew what I liked, and I knew what we could what we could do and what was possible. And then those guys were fantastic. And also I talked to Adam McKay and I said, you know, what's a good way to get started to get the ball rolling? And he was like, have everybody come in with monologue. So I used that and we built it together. And, you know, you just you, you roll with the punches. You just go with what happened. But it, it turned out to be brilliant. I mean, to work with those guys. And then you move out here to Los Angeles shortly after that. And I'll, I'll never forget. And, and this is a memory. I know I've shared this with you before. When your first son, Matthew, is born. Do you remember this? We go to see the movie. It was Easter. We go and we see Casablanca. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? Oh, of course. Yes. Do you, do you want to finish the story? Oh, just that, you know, that I told you that I was about to have a kid. Right. And you weren't married at the time. Mm-mm. And we were in our 20s, right? Which, you know. <laughs> what I remember even more than that was on the way home, you and I did. Remember? Well, you probably don't remember this. We did a show somewhere downtown, like a paid gig. It was like in some small place. I don't even remember where it was. It was like on Rush Street. Yes. We had a big spotlight. Yes. 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 And And you and I walked all the way back. Yes. To my apartment from Rush Street, which is quite a ways. Which would would just, but but it had to be four or five miles, right? Yes. Easy. Yeah. And I was talking all about, uh, all about that happening. And uh, I think, I think that's when I first was talking to you about it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I remember. Maybe. I remember we were talking about it, but I remember the first time we it was Easter Sunday, and we went to the Music Box, which is this old, beautiful theater in Wrigleyville in Chicago. I mean, it's a movie palace, and uh, you're like, "Oh, let's go see Casablanca." And then, and I, every time I pass by that street, it's by the right off the Jewel at Southport. I th- and there was like a a white church, which I think now is a house. I think of that time where you you tell me, Susie's pregnant. We're gonna have we're gonna have a kid, and I'm. I think you said you were gonna marry her. Oh, right? sure. But and here I am, twenty seven. You know, uh, fear of commitment until I was in my forties. I'm like, what? You know, like I I couldn't believe it, but I also understood it was like, it was it was just, uh, just a very special moment. Oh, that was an amazing moment because that was, I mean. That was like going to talk to the priest. I mean, that was like, that was like, oh boy. Was that one of the first people you told? Oh, I think the very. And uh, I wonder why you trusted me back then, because I could be. I, you know what? We also were. We just watched my favorite, one of my favorite movies, and I feel like I have such a connection to that movie that I just, I just, I don't know. Those movies, those movies, movies mean so much to me. They opened me up in such a way that it's a wonderful life, things like that. I just feel so connected to. I don't know. I, I don't know. But anyway, the thing that I do remember, though, is when we walked back from the other place and I let you off. I let you off up at your apartment up on Sheffield or whatever. And I walked all the way back to um, wherever I lived down in uh, on Willow, you know, in uh, what's that? Old Town. Old Town. And uh, I was coming up the front steps. And Susie stuck her head out the window. She said, welcome back, Papa. And... I remember just like when my dad had died, going down the stairs. This was the same thing, except I was going up the stairs. And as I was climbing up those stairs, I kept thinking, I was like, 
this is it. You can turn and run now. <laughs> or if you go up those stairs, life is about to change dramatically. And it was the same thing as when I went down those stairs to go see my mom and, and hear that my dad had died. And when I was going up those stairs, I just remember, and the second I got to the top of the stairs, I asked Susie to marry me. But I mean, I knew that my life was going to change. I knew that I knew... And it was amazing. I was so young. I was 28 years old. But it was a blessing. Matthew is now a great friend besides being my my son. He's a great friend who turns me on to great uh, new comedy. And he's hilarious. Like we went through this phase where, you know, like where I would do the, the dog's voice, dog talking to the cat and all the kids and everybody would laugh. And then little by little, Matthew started to take over. And then like he would chime in and then at dinner and then he would then he totally took over after a while. And then I was like, oh, passing of the torch. But it's great. I, I, he, he's, at I, he's reliving my life. You know, he's, he's back. He's at I.O. He's on a house team. He's doing the whole thing. James Grace was there to, uh, to kind of guide him and help him. Thank God. Does he ever ask you for advice? No. Well, he wouldn't even let me coach his team. I wanted to coach his team. How did you feel about that? Oh, well, I was disappointed because I was like, oh, you guys just need a good opening. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, the... Um, uh, I was so lucky because I don't think anybody else will get this opportunity. All my friends and mentors taught my son to to improvise. I mean, he couldn't have gone anywhere else to learn better. I mean, these guys are the best. Paul Valencourt, Dave Rizowski, uh, Craig Craig Kukowski. I mean, these guys are the best. And he got that. And he's it, it paid off. He's, he's great. And, and now he's studying at the... At the place where I did uh, took acting classes, which is uh, Sewer Roger Studio. Okay. Uh, how important was it to your career, and how important is it? Without those acting classes, are you on Crazy Ex Wife? Crazy, Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Girlfriend. How 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 are those classes? Wait, without the, yes, without that class, do you get Crazy Ex Girlfriend? Um, no, because I wasn't really letting go yet. Uh, before. I, I no, I mean, probably in the last six years or so, I was getting closer and closer to it. And when I was doing my commercial jobs, I kind of turned a corner. I'm very suggestible. Somebody came up to me and said, uh, "You know, the thing I love about commercials is it's like you're the star of your own little movie." And I was like, "No, no, no, yeah, I guess it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah, it is." And then I just kind of took that on and. I just used to do these commercials and especially the auditions, and I would just let it rip. I didn't care at all, and I had so much fun. And then it really started. I, you know what the thing is? I started to show up. I started to show up in my work where people would see me in stuff and they'd be like, "That's you. That's really you." And I really feel like, I feel like that's essential because everybody can do. Like if, if the job is to be the vice principal or to be the boss or whatever, everybody can be a boss that you've seen on TV or seen in a movie or whatever. But nobody can do your boss, how you would be if you were in that situation. And that's your gold. Your gold is you. You being you. And that's what makes everybody so specific. Now, now of course, the different characters and the different situations, that's going to change you a little bit. If you're from Massachusetts, then, you know, you maybe you would adopt an accent or an attitude or you have feelings about this, that. Or if you're a lawyer, then you have to understand what it means to be a lawyer and to represent people and to, you know, whatever. But it has to be you. It has to come through you. And I always, like we were talking about before, I was like, I always was playing a character 
I was always not me. I was always doing something else. And when you play you, it's like, that's gold. And the more you can tap into you and really be you and really expose yourself as who you really are, it's magic. And then, and that's what's really made a difference with the show is because people relate to my guy. They relate to him because there's a part of me. There's genuineness. I'm not just what, being What funny. part of you is? Oh, Darryl. every part of it. It's like little pieces of it. Little, little pieces. Not all of it. But some, some of it's my mom. Some of it's my brother-in-law. Some of it's my brother. Some of it's me. Some of it's, you know, it's all mixed together. It's just, but it's, I, it's just me living through that, you know, that situation. What would I be like in that situation? And so, you know, I just let it all hang out. And I go, you know, like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't cry in, an, in my office unless I was really lost. If I was really lost and I didn't know where my life was going, maybe I would cry in my office when somebody was questioning me about something. And that's when Daryl cries. He's like, he's lost. He doesn't know what's going on. And that's why this whole thing where he's recently uh, come out as bisexual, he's like, he just didn't know where, he doesn't know where he fits in. He doesn't know where he could find love. He'd, he'd basically given up. And so somebody shows him affection and it's just like, it's like, and it's great. It's like, it's just a love story. And that's, that's what I love about it. It's not sexual. You, it's, it's a do, love story. Do you feel some pressure? Because th this character is like, this is the most realistic bisexual character. There's been other bisexual characters on TV. Well, you know, mostly they, they always try to manipulate. So in other words, they're, bi they're gay, but then they'll become heterosexual if they want to get something. Or they're, you know, they're, they're always, or they're a slut and they want to, and that's what this whole thing was all about, was that, it's a legitimate thing. Being a bisexual is legitimate. It's not just. And that's what a lot of people, I got letters from people, friends of mine that are bisexual that said, oh boy, when you went to kiss that guy, uh, when you kissed white Josh, I really cringed because I was just waiting for you to pull back and be going, nope, not gay, as a joke. Like that it would be a, the butt of a joke or it would be a punchline. And when they didn't see that, they were so shocked because that's what, that's the way normally that, um, you know, bisexuality is being portrayed. And you, you said when you got the part, you, you reached out to Neil Flynn because you were... Because he's a known bisexual. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I reached out because it's a musical. And uh, I was very freaked out by that because all the other people in the show are from Broadway or, you know, have, are Obie Award winners. What the Santino Fontana, I think, is up for a Tony Award right now. He had a fantastic voice. And um, I was so frightened. I was like, oh, this is a major mistake <laughs> that they're going to discover along the way. And I was like, I was very frightened about it. And then Neil Flynn, I went out to lunch with him and I was asking him about press and, you know, like, what, should I tell stories? He's like, you yeah, know, just keep it short. And he was very helpful. And he's done. He's been working in television for like 14, 15 years going from series to series. It's amazing. And so anyway, he's so on he, the middle of people don't know. Well, he's on he, the middle right now, but he was, he was the, the, scrubs, the, janitor the janitor on Scrubs. scrubs. Um, and then I told him, and I said, oh, yeah, and by the way, it's a musical. And he looked at me across the table, and he goes, that's fantastic. He was like, good for you. Why wow, you're never going to get that opportunity again. Enjoy it. And once again, I'm very suggestible. I just flipped a switch, and I was like, yeah, this is good. Oh, yeah, this is great. I'm never going to get to do this again. And I just embraced it. But it was still very scary. When I got my song, my first song, I Love My Daughter, but not in a creepy way. I love that. I, it was such a funny song. But they told me when I first got the job, there's a big wall and it has everybody's episode up on the wall, all the episodes and how everybody fits into them. 
and what when like what happens and so they were like oh here this is your first song in episode five so you're gonna have plenty of time to work on it don't worry about it i'm like yeah right and then they're like oh and here in episode 11 you're bisexual and i was like oh good and that actually was a huge thing for me because i knew then that i would get to do that my character would have something to it it wouldn't just be like the goofy boss who's tripping over the furniture that he would have a, a love relationship so i was like oh this is fantastic but the song they kept telling me, oh, you're going to have a month to work on it. You know, and I got a I got a vocal coach. There was a guy who lived across the street from me, literally lived across the street from me, is the guy who taught David Hyde Pierce to sing for um, Spam a lot. Yes. And uh, and so I went to him and I started taking class work with him. And uh, and then they didn't give me my song because it was very controversial. And so the, the CW wouldn't release it to me. We got a week out. They wouldn't release it. We got a couple. We got. They kept saying, you're going to get it next week for sure. Next week when for sure. When they released it, to give you the song? Give me the song so I can start working and, and on it. you're probably nervous. Oh, my gosh. I just wanted to I wanted to be so overprepared. But I, I freaked out. I was just like, oh, what are they doing? They're trying to screw me. <laughs> Whatever, you know, you start to get paranoid. Because you, I, I was the one, I felt, who needed the most help. And I was getting it the f- closest to action. And then I got it on a Sunday. And I had to do it at the table read on Wednesday. So I had like two or three days with it. And I was like, and you know what? I had freaked out about it for over a month. So there was nothing left. There was nothing in the tank anymore. And I had to do it in front of the network. And I had to do it in front of the producers. And I had to do it in front of all the Broadway kids. And I was just like, screw it. And I was just like, balls to the walls. Let's go for this. And I did it. And I went for it. And they all the producers all stood up and clapped after I was done because if I had choked, there would have been nothing to put in its place. So it w- I didn't realize even how much more pressure on it there was than it was because the the network could still have been like, you know what, it's not it's not working. We don't like it. We're well, gonna pull it. If anyone has seen the show, I mean, it really pushes TV boundaries. I mean, it talks about mental illness. It talks about sexuality. I mean. There, the standards and practices on the network, the censoring thing, it, th- there must be notes all the time. Oh, yeah, we're never privy to, I'm never privy to any of that. But, you know, we, we work with such amazing people. Uh, Aline Brosh McKenna and Rachel Bloom are just two of the most wonderful people, and they're so inclusive. Um, when I first got the job, they were, they were so nice. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things that Aline said to me, the showrunner, she's like, now, you're the veteran. So people are going to be looking to you. A lot of these people haven't done a lot of television, but they've done a lot of theater and they, they're great singers and stuff. But they're going to be looking to you as how to behave and you know, or whatever on set. And I totally took that to heart because all it takes is just a little bit of dissension. You know that in an improv show. All it has to take is one person starting to judge and then everybody starts to bail out. And then it was it was a no-brainer because I was so happy and in having such a good time working on the show that I show up there and am, I'm in a good mood from the second I arrive to the second I'm gone. How do you do that? Oh, come on. It's so easy. All I would say to people is if anybody would get to be 1130 and people were like, oh, 1130 at night. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're still working on this scene. I was like, where else you got to be? What else you want to be doing? We're on television being funny. What else? And just, and people would be like, yeah, I guess I guess you're right. But I mean, it's like, come on. It's like we were we get to do the scene twice. We do the scene twice because, you know, it's it's so well written and it, there's so much information that has to come across that you don't want to you don't, don't want to skimp on what's been 
what's been done and the work that's been already laid there. But then we usually get a third take or a fourth take where you can add and put your little bits of things in there. You can improvise a little. Oh, and that's a gift. Oh, my God. On the pilot, they let me do that. And normally, what even Neil Flynn told me that. He's like, normally they wait until the second season and they know you and can trust you. And they're like, yeah, you can do a little something here and there. How much of the appreciation of this job comes because it comes later in your life? Oh, all because of that. Uh, I think I think it has a lot to do with that. It also has a lot to do with because I know what I'm doing now. Um, I'm, I, there's no fear. Um, there's no fear of I'm going to lose the job or I'm going to be cut out of. Well, you know, I had a, a clause in my uh, in my contract that they could fire me within five days of when I started shooting. So I thought there was a huge axe over my head. Plus, you were replaced Michael McDonald, right? That's in, right. In the pilot, so you're like, oh. I would imagine that I would... felt I had big shoes to fill. Yeah. And I um I but I was so nervous and I I it really that that was difficult because I really felt like oh no and any second they're going to be like you know what? And also I was improvising. I I but then I was like screw it. I and also Rachel who I was doing a lot of my scenes with when she and I did when I auditioned for the when I auditioned to get the job she um she had me audition and I did my stuff. And then she's like, "No, let's do it. you play with me." And uh, and but I remember when I did my first read through or my first uh, audition, and I messed up a line. And she's like, "I said Glendora instead of Glen Ellen or or some some town name." And she's like, oh, don't worry about that. Say whatever you want." And as soon as she gave me that freedom, it just all went out the window. And I just I did the lines as written, but I was loosey goosey and I was adding stuff. And I was playing with her, and I was looking her in the eye. And when I looked in her in the eye, she sent back to me, go for it. All I could see was no fear and go for it, go for it, go for it. And then I could see that little twinkle in her eye, too, of like that she was laughing, but she was continuing to do the scene. And I was just like, this is home. This is easy. This is great. So when we're doing scenes, it's just – and then also – the, the beauty, I mean, I've recurred on shows before where I come back and everybody's glad to see you and all that's really wonderful. But to be there day in and day out and the cast gets to know you and the, the crew gets to know you and everybody relaxes and enjoys you. And then the real goal is to make the crew laugh. If you can make the crew laugh, you know, you know you're hitting it because they've seen it all. If they've been there all day, they've had it. So to, that's like, that's the... That's the butter. If you can really nail that's that's I mean that's when and that's the improv. We, we, we add a little improv here and there that nobody sees coming, and then you know God bless them they keep a lot of the stuff, and that's you know I, I and also I do it with absolutely no, you know, idea that anything will be saved. I and, and the other thing that big lesson that I learned is give them a lot of a lot of variation. Don't because when I first started doing stuff I would do it perfect or try to do it as perfect as I thought. Also perfect doesn't exist. So I would just, I let that go, and then I would do a, the take this way, and then I'd do a take that way, and then I'd do a take like this, and then I'd do a take where I was a little this. And then they come up to me now after, like when they're doing the mix, and they're like, I'm so glad that you do that because then if somebody else's take is a little bit weird, we can match it with one of the things that you did, and we can add it in. And they said sometimes the stuff that I improvise isn't funny, it's emotional. Like there'll be an emotional twist and they're like, and that's even more important than the funny sometimes. Sometimes there's just not room or there's not time, but you just got to give them 
all kinds of different stuff to play with so that they can they can create with because it. it's all done you know when they start to edit it and put it together if you've ever seen the mix it a mix a show it's brilliant and it, that's really where the jokes and all the the funny comes from because it's like they have all the basic materials but then you got to put it together with art how do you artistry. give yourself that permission because here you are it's it's, it's really your biggest break right Wouldn't oh for say? sure you're making more money probably than you've ever had. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, you're getting a lot of exposure. How do you not feel that pressure and just have fun all the time? Because it, it's it's in my wheelhouse. It's in my this wheelhouse. This character's in I, your wheelhouse. And I, you know what? I've known that for years. I've known for years that it's just a matter of those cogs lining up. And that, I would say this to any other actor that's out there waiting for something to come through. Just keep Finding what your voice is and just keep going there. Keep finding stuff. Keep playing. Be in plays. Work, work, work. Because eventually the machine is going to come around and those cogs are going to line up and it's going to fit. And it's going to, and that's, I know that. I've known that for years. It, if it's a stretch, you're not going to do it because it's, it, it, it'll, you got to do it for years. You got, and you got to keep coming back and being that guy over and over and over again. It's got to be a good fit. But also, you know, here's the other big thing. Be comfortable wherever you're at, wherever you're at. If you're doing commercials, find the joy in doing commercials. If you want to be a movie star, live your life like you're a movie star. Honestly, get a sports car, you know, cut your hair funny, do whatever you want, grow a mustache, do what you want to do. Don't wait like someday they're going to give it to you and then it's going to be good. Is that why you grew the mustache? Absolutely. Absolutely. My dad had a mustache. Back to my dad. My brother had a mustache. My my um, comedy heroes had mustaches. Who are your comedy heroes? Uh, Bill Murray, uh, Dabney Coleman, um, all, all those guys at one point um, had mustaches. And uh, Robin Williams had a mustache for a while. Um, I just... Uh, Charlie Chaplin. I think I, I love the mustache because the mustache is just like, screw it. I don't care anymore. I don't care. I'm not going to try to do what you want me to do. I mean, because I did it uh, when I was doing commercials mainly. And that seemed like I was really shooting myself in the foot. Now, everybody in a commercial has a mustache. But this but is back before then, every... Back then, nobody had a mustache. And it was just like, oh, you look like a child molester. Oh, you look like a porn star. Oh, you look like whatever. I didn't give a damn. I was like, screw you. I don't care. This is what I want to do. And then once you get into that, that's what I think. Once you can tap into doing what you want to do, I think people like Adam McKay and, and people, John Favreau and other people like that, they tapped into that a long time ago. They figured out a long time ago, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And everybody comes to you. I think passion wins the day. Passion always wins the day. You just got to be passionate about what you're doing. We got to wrap this up. This has been an enjoyable. We went over our time here. Oh, I always okay. go over. Okay, I good, go good, because I always feel shame and whatever. So uh, we we always end the same question. What piece of advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? I would give uh, the main advice is is get up as much as often and fail. If that's what you're afraid of, fail as much as possible. Because as soon as you fail, you'll realize it's not that big a deal. It's not what you think it's going to be. It doesn't it, what you what you assume as failure will just drift away. And then you take that off of the good and the failure so that you just kind of always in the middle ground. You're always in the middle ground of like it is what it is and it's all in. It's all in. And then the other big piece of advice is if you're doing a lot of improv, stop and go take an acting class because you know what? 
Improv is the magic. Acting is the job. That's what you get paid for. You really get paid to say somebody else's lines. That's really, at least that's my experience. And then the, the improv is like a special tool that you have in your tool belt that makes it magical. But you gotta have that. You gotta have the acting. You gotta spend the time. Spend the time. I told that to Matthew, my son, when he was doing it. I'm like, you can only do this for a little while, then I'm cutting you off. And you gotta go do acting. You gotta do acting as well because you gotta have that discipline. We went. We did it for what? Ten years? Ten years of improv? I mean, that's like ridiculous. And you know what happens? Ten years of improv, you get your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yes. Pete Gardner, thank you so much thank for you, being Jimmy. our guest on this L.A. version of Improv Nerd. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank my guest, Pete Gardner, for being our guest and being a dear old friend uh, for, for doing the show. It was so much fun to talk about it. And I hope I didn't get to a uh, therapist on him there. Uh, but it sounded like he had some breakthroughs. I also want to thank Dustin Marshall here in Los Angeles, uh, for uh, producing this episode, and Dan Schiffmacher back in Chicago for putting this episode together. Uh, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, my blog, uh, anything, Jimmy, if you just want to check me out, uh, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, as you know, we're taking over social media. We've been doing this uh, for the last five years, if you've known it or not. Go to uh, our Facebook page, Improv Nerd, and like us, because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us at Twitter, Improv underscore Nerd, and then our wonderful YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word, and you get to see clips from our live shows. We're lucky enough to be part of this wonderful podcast collective called FeralAudio.com, so check out all their podcasts on FeralAudio.com. And I'd like to thank our sponsors today, the Kansas City Improv Festival, the Atlanta Improv Festival, and the West Coast Musical Improv Festival. And of course, I want to thank you for listening to us. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. He's a nerd, he's a nerd. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicide of thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's, like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs>